Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And uh, this is episode 117. 117. We've been doing these podcasts since 2019. 2019. So we're almost up on the uh, uh, two-year anniversary. That'll be that'll be popping up shortly. Um, well, actually, it'll be the three-year anniversary <laughs> as I come to think of it. My, how time flies, and, and how things have changed. Um, I can remember telling people, "Don't bother reloading nine millimeter because it's there's so much of it cheap on the market that it it wasn't economically." It didn't economically make sense to hand load it, and how much different things are today. So we've we've kind of gone through our spiel about how guys can kind of pool together and, and crank out ammo. Um, you know that will help us definitely for the next shortage. It's going to be a question of when primers hit the market. I think most people who've been uh, um, hand loading it's amazing how you know if you're if you're a bit judicious in what you hand load um you know a lot of people keep a year or two years stock on hand but at a certain point that's all going to be running out and uh you know i think primers are going to hit the market when when we reach that threshold where not having the ability to reload ammunition will affect gun sales and so, you know, first it was all the guns were gone. Now, you know, you go into Shields or Cabela's or any place, you, you find plenty of guns. Even during the dire part of the shortage, you could go in, you may not find the gun that you're looking for, but you could find something equivalent to it. So it was a very, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't like everything just dried up and it was completely gone the way primers did. Um, there were guns out there. So, you know, guns are out there and really they're not they're not badly priced they're not badly priced at all and uh, the problem is the problem is is that uh, you have a choice with ammunition not to shoot or to shoot kind of expensive ammo because the price of ammo has really gone up it basically doubled especially the cheap kind of blasting stuff that most enthusiasts use a lot of that stuff went up and uh, there's no real sense that it's going to come down anytime soon. So uh, hand loading is now at the forefront and hand loading equipment was in short supply. People kind of broke the code on all this. But the one key ingredient, the long pole in the tent, however you want to say it, are primers. And uh, there really have been very little primers on the on the market. And uh, that has got to change that has definitely and the stuff that's on the market is is exorbitantly priced um i'm telling them you know most people hand load to save money there there is a hobby aspect to it and and all the rest but a lot of people want to save money so 79 or 80 dollars for a thousand primers is excessive uh, those things used to be 10 to 20 dollars so that that tells you that they basically quadrupled in price over say the last 15 years so um, those have got to come down and they've got to be available just just have to have it but it's it's uh just like the rest of our country have you noticed that that biden has managed to break everything everything's broken nothing is functioning correctly um you know, people people are being forced out of we have a labor shortage, but people are being forced out of jobs because of vaccine mandates. Uh, you know, all the foreign stuff that's gone gone down. Everything from Afghanistan to, you know, these. What do they call them now? They call them the um, these refugee trains or refugee uh, waves that that seem to seem to come up. <laughs> And I mean, all of this is a huge mess. The whole country is in a huge mess. Everything is more expensive. Now, you, you can tell the Democrats are in charge. Gasoline is up over $3 a gallon. Some places over $4. You know, energy and our energy independence is now basically gone. And now we're reliant on importing energy. And you know what that does? Look what that's done to our, our foreign policy for 50 years. And, and Biden just gives that away. And he's about to give away more at some 
ridiculous climate change farcical thing that he's doing. And then you just look at the guy. He is just, you know, he's he hasn't even, he's there's no way this guy lasts four years. I mean, he is already the cognitive decline between the election and now. And he wasn't doing too good around the election time. But the cognitive decline is horrible, absolutely horrible. So he is the guy who is, you know, single-handedly trying to wreck the country. Uh, they're even pronouncing his presidency dead. He can't get his domestic agenda through because the Ocasio-Cortezes are demanding more and more and more. And, you know, this, this brings up probably the weirdest story I think I've ever heard. The craziest thing I've ever heard, which is they want to bring payments, give payments of up to a million dollars per family to illegals that were separated at the border as part of the, you know, process of what do we do with these people? I mean, that's insanity. I mean, there, there's no rational way that can be that can be looked at. I mean, there's no rational way that that can be justified. And it's it's part of this cartoon, comical, you know, idiotic presidency that's it's literally, you know, we have Biden, a crazy old man wants to pay illegals. We have our defense establishment. You know, we already talked about the three stooges. Our most important overseas command, which is CENTCOM, is headed by, well, what's his name, McKenzie, a complete idiot. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs is another idiot. And the Secretary of Defense is yet again a third idiot. So uh, we've, we've done that. I, I mean, I can only assume the rest of our foreign policy is in complete disarray. It's, it is unbelievable. And we're now we're getting, now we're getting something that we have not seen since World War II. Since World War II, as my parents used to call it, the war. You know, you never hear that term anymore because most of the people who lived through it and, and saw it are, are gone now, but... They used to say, yeah, during the war, this was in short supply. During the war, we couldn't get any of this. And it was always just a theoretical to us. What do you mean you couldn't get tires? Didn't you go to the tire store and buy tires? And the answer is no, because there was no tire store, and the places where they had bought tires didn't have any more because they were all going on trucks and Jeeps and, and other things that were being used for the war effort, airplanes, everything that took tires, the military stuff took priority. Uh, food was rationed. Gasoline was rationed. Um, you know, it's only a matter of time before we start really running out of things. And I'll tell you this right now, the American public is not going to stand for that. I mean, they are not going to stand for that. It, January 6th will look like a pro-Biden rally compared to what's going to happen if you start taking away <laughs> big screen TVs and all the other things that are, are welfare-focused society is is used to you know when people can't get their starbucks anymore um or any of this other stuff then you'll see some real anger uh, and won't be just people milling around the uh uh the capitol building you know there's there's 2500 hours maybe even more of footage they won't release and the reason they won't release it is because it just shows people milling around taking pictures it doesn't show the it does not support the insurrection picture that especially Democrats and a few a few traitors like Lynn Cheney and, and some of these other fools want to want to propagate. So it's really funny what they're not showing you, what they're not letting you see is the is the truth. And I mean the the, the fact we can't have the truth is is terrible. You know, that brings a couple of other podcasts, these kind of firearms-focused ones, have been talking about. There's a theory out there of the big divorce, and the big divorce is: hey, red states and blue states. We might have a weak federal government, but they're basically the states are going to kind of band together and say, "We don't like you. You don't like us. We're going to have very little to do with you, and we want you to have little to do with us." And frankly, I'm kind of fine with that. You know. Um, I live in a blue state, or I'm sorry, I live in a red state, so 
I don't really care what blue states do. All I can say is I look at blue state culture. And and frankly, yeah, take all your sports teams. I could care less. Take them all. Take them all. We'll we'll move ours. You can have ours. You can move, you know, the ones from the Midwest and and uh, the red states. You can plop them anywhere in a blue state. Like who cares? Um, you know, you can have all that. You can have the, for the most part, the entertainment industry. I mean, we see what a bunch of kooks those people are and you know there's all kinds of ways to do it i i can't really go into all the the ways but there are some enumerated ways in the constitution that states can have compacts with each other and everything i suppose all that is doable but it may i i fully expect that within a period of time we will see something like that because frankly the only thing that people can agree on is that they don't agree on almost anything so there we go big divorce could happen oh you know this it's been 10 minutes 12 minutes here um really want to get into some gun stuff and uh exciting news if if you're like me it doesn't affect me but it's exciting news springfield armory a good company you know they get a lot they get a lot of um they, they get they get dogged on quite a bit and they've always been a very good company. They produce very good 1911 pistols. And the M1A is an outstanding and great rifle. I mean, it really is. I mean, it is It is just a world beater. And especially its match versions and everything has really, really been a great rifle. And they've produced, F, well, they you know, through their connections, um, they got some inbuilt fns that they brought in and called them sar 48s or sar 4800s whatever whatever it was and they they went to greece and got some g3 you know had some g3s and things made i mean they've imported some very cool guns they've made the old m6 survival rifle for a few years um they've produced a lot of very cool guns and now they're producing the browning high power and you know, it's it's amazing the reaction to that is, which is, ah, that's awesome because the Browning High Power has been dropped from its original producer, Browning, for a few years anyway. I, and, you know, they've been kind of dropping that. At first, um, they made them in Belgium. Very nice guns. Very nice guns. Then they made the parts in Belgium and I think assembled in Portugal. Still nice guns. Uh, they were a little more tactical then. They didn't have the fine blued finish or any of that. They kind of had the... Um, parkerized or, or some sort of you know military style finish um, but they're still very nice guns there have been scads of uh, licensed copies in uh, I believe Argentina perhaps Brazil um, I know that there were unlicensed copies in Hungary and then you know of course you go back to World War II and then the the famous Inglis high powers that were made in Canada very very cool guns very cool guns the shoulder stocks and all that all that goodness so you know there have been a lot of other producers who've made Browning high powers I think and and the the design is influenced was it the Kareem the one in Israel which is kind of a high power clone um, the Hungarians made a very good copy of the high power and a you know, some that were kind of derivative designs. I think like double action or something. Uh, so the there have been there have been other Browning high powers out there, but now Springfield Armory's got one. Looks like a very nice gun. Um, has a nice looks like easy to see front sight. A good looks like at least partially adjustable rear sight. You know, looks looks really good. And it's got a a uh, you know one of the things on the original was the uh, um, the safety lever wasn't very big but now they've replaced that with a larger one and and the later the later browning models had you know improved safeties but the original one that it was designed with was pretty small so you had to kind of pay attention to make sure you flip that flip that thing off if you were carrying it cocked and locked but there's a lot of good uh, a lot of good things um i don't know if it has the uh magazine safety that would be interesting to know. I think it does not. I think I read one thing. It does not have the magazine safety. So, 
it does you know it's going to have a nice trigger pull so all those things are are together all those things are good and uh it's going to be a nice gun now the reaction to it has been you know just a sign of the times these guys who who grew have now grown up without the foundation of having you know solid steel pistols and really knowing what kind of quality is they're like yeah this is a very cool gun wow it's you know the recoil is very manageable they all of a sudden and this is the old school guns part coming out hey there is merit in these older designs they're not just some obsolete pieces of junk that are just floating around out there um, the Browning high power is a great design and will always be a great design whether people appreciate it or not I don't know um, a lot of people are looking for attributes that are different you know they were <laughs> the 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 most idiotic comment was well it doesn't have an accessory rail which I think is horrid on a lot of pistols because nobody uses them because attaching a light to your gun is and then find a holster that will fit all of it is kind of daunting or it doesn't it's not cut out for the optical sight that people like now and I would say if you're looking for those attributes there are plenty of guns on the market that offer that there are plenty of them um, but I will I will also say that there are a lot of people and and the other uh, the other part of this to interrupt myself the other part of this is um, it's, it's reasonably priced I think it's supposedly going to be MSRP under 700 bucks which means maybe 600 in stores which is pretty good which is really pretty good considering what you're what you're getting um, that's a that's a fine that's a fine gun and a lot of people are going to appreciate its attributes there's something about not having to change batteries or not breaking the optical side or not having you know the only safety that you have is the little paddle on uh, on your trigger there's all goodness in that if you need a tough durable handgun that will never let you down the Browning high power has a lot going for it it's it's closer to that gun than some of the other guns I've seen um, I just think that you know there I saw Browning high powers Inglis high powers that were still in service in the early 2000s so you know I mean I don't know what else to say about that except that obviously there is some durability and rugged rugged ruggedness gotta learn to talk sometimes there's some ruggedness in that design that um, and it's also simple design and all of those things together make a really excellent sidearm and uh, people would be well well served to check it out definitely well served to check it out so yeah the browning high power is is back and, and you know you never know about springfield they make things for a while the only thing that i think they've made consistently since their beginning is the m1a rifle and then the 1911s are probably next a lot of this other stuff kind of comes and goes and uh, i am cynical enough to believe there is not a large enough market for a traditional browning high power in the united states to warrant them keeping this in production forever so if you want one you better go buy one now because they at a certain point they're going to be gone and it's just uh, you know the two handguns two handguns that i would buy right now would be get a sig p210 either the duty or the target i have the target and really like it and get one of these high powers and you will you will have a great you will have a great gun you know you will have great guns that aren't going to be around forever the beauty of the 1911 is it, it so many people make it and the market for it is so great that um, it, it'll probably always be around a little bit you know it's like you can even get the you know the thesis guns the ones I'm not crazy about Turkey I don't really like their politics or, or a lot of things about Turkey but one of the things I do like is they do produce some kind of some kind of very nice guns and apparently 
the TSIS 1911 A1 is a very nice gun. So um, it does everything a 1911 A1 does. So, and it's very reasonably priced. I'd, I'd definitely snag if if I didn't have enough 1911s already, I would I would get my hands on a TSIS. And if you can't find the TSIS, go to the uh, Auto Ordnance 1911. That's another good one. Really good one. Okay, let's talk about ah some more on powder coating. I think I I think I kind of wrapped up powder coating last podcast, but I I've got some additional info. Um, you know I've actually kind of worked on it a little bit and uh, been thinking about it. And where should you? And now that I've I'm able to successfully powder coat bullets, which is nice. I mean I have not mastered it, so all my bullets are the <laughs> they're blue. They're this kind of baby blue or powder blue that um you know is is the uh powder coat that seems to stick the best and i suppose if i can get some other colors i could mix it and maybe turn maybe put, if i could get some yellow i could mix it together and turn some green bullets which would look a little more look a little more military or look a little more uh, outdoorsy but um the powder coated bullets use them wherever you need velocity any place you'd use a gas check is probably good to have a powder coated bullet um at higher velocity and i would also use them on nine millimeters even though nine millimeter i don't know there are a lot of cast bullet designs that have i can't think of one as a matter of fact that has a gas check on it but usually those are driven at a little higher velocity and um my experience in the past has been you can get some really ugly leading from lead nine millimeter bullets if you're not careful. They uh, they will definitely lead your bore. So um, I would powder coat those bad boys with the powder coating. If you have a bullet that's powder coated with a gas check on it, you're you're gonna be approaching the kind of performance you could get from a jacketed bullet. So, you know, it's a, it's a really good thing to be able to do, and it's a really nice option to, to have. So that's what I would think. I, I mean, I'm not going to powder coat every cast bullet I make. It's a little too time intensive, and frankly, it's just not worth it. For a 38 wad cutter load, it's, it's not worth it. And in fact, it might even, it might even, uh, uh, I've got a pretty good set load, and, and it might even, you know, change that and kind of foul it up a little bit so that it doesn't uh, work as well. But I will definitely use it on 9mm. Definitely use it on 9mm. Okay, so that's... And uh, definitely rifle bullets, too. Um, I was just going to... I was going to end that, but I'm going to interrupt myself to say it's not just pistol bullets. Um, you know, cast bullets traditionally have a really limited role in rifles. And actually, you know, the, the latest Lyman cast bullet handbook is pretty disappointing in many ways. Um... You know, they got all these short magnum, well, a cast bullet in a short magnum, you know, I mean, that's ridiculous. They should concentrate a lot more on classic cartridges like 3040 Crag, 3030, 32 Winchester Special, maybe 7mm Mauser. Some of these other designs where, you know, you might not be able to find the military bullet, but you can find a cast bullet that is sort of similar. So for 100 yards and, and, uh, and under shooting, you can you can really kind of get away with the uh, cast bullet that's powder coated with a gas check. You're you're probably going to be not too far away from what these uh, rounds were originally doing back in the <laughs> back in the early part of the 20th century. So anyway, um, yeah, it's going to be very good. And I've got some uh, uh, bullets I'm going to try in the 303 British to see uh, just how far it goes. 85 185 grain bullet with a gas check powder coated uh, we'll see what it does we'll see what it does oh more on cast bullets you know one of the things about cast bullets is everybody's afraid of leading you know the, the first question is hey is this going to lead my barrel that leads people that and a variety of other factors to use very minimum loads with cast bullets and that's not a bad thing you can get away with that in a lot of guns but there are some guns you you cannot and I was loading some 30 Mauser, and I was just had some experimental loads, so I used some of this loading data that that I had, and it's good data, but it didn't drive the bullet fast enough. A bullet, believe it or not, will actually keyhole 
at too low a velocity. It's just not it's just not going out fast enough to be stabilized. So sometimes you have to increase the velocity a little bit to to get it to stabilize and, and just trial and error is the only way to find that threshold. But be careful, you can drive some cast bullets too slowly out of out of handguns. You can drive them too slowly. So uh, that is my one little nugget that I found out this week that I'm passing on to to everybody else. That's what that's what the story is. Make sure that you have enough velocity so that don't be so afraid of letting that you screw up the velocity and wind up with a load that's not stable and and going to keyhole. All right. Well, that about covers the biggest parts of it. There's nothing really in the gun culture that uh, is all that interesting. Um, there's actually one question I have that kind of relates back to it. So we'll just start my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And we've talked about this one before. Why are some cartridges called 38s, like 38 Smith & Wesson, 38 New Colt Police, 38 Special, 38 Short Colt, 38 Long Colt, when they're actually 357s? Okay, that's because back in the old days they measured the diameter of the cartridge case as opposed to the bullet or the uh, groove diameter in the barrel. So... A 38 in those days with that measurement actually was a 38 because the cartridge case was 38. The barrel was a little bit smaller. And after all the examples I read you, obviously the field is crowded with 38s. So when they came out with 357 Magnums, the 357 Magnum, they called it a 357 to differentiate it from all those earlier cartridges that are out there. And 38 Smith & Wesson and 38 New Colt Police are the same just each company named it something different because Colt did not want to make a gun that said 38 Smith and Wesson and uh, so they called it 38 Colt New Police you know it was a long time um, Smith and Wesson did not make a 45 Colt revolver for the longest time until like the model 25 came out model 25 5 was that it um, and that was because they didn't want to have 38, or I'm sorry, not 38, 45 Colt on their barrel because they were Smith & Wesson. So they just didn't make one. They would make 44 Special and 44 Magnum, but they did not make one that had a Colt um, deal on there, the Colt name on there. Same thing with, you may have heard of it, it's an old cartridge called a 35 Smith & Wesson. Basically a 32 ACP, a little bit larger, but they didn't want to make it 32 ACP because ACP stands for Automatic Colt Pistol. And at that time, Americans weren't buying, you know, 7.65 revolt, you know, um, automatic pistols, you know. So it, it um, you know, they just didn't make it. They made their own proprietary cartridge and it wound up failing abject failure so sometimes you know the, the words are important and they did not want to give Colt any free advertising on a Smith & Wesson gun that's for sure so they just didn't make it till recently recently meaning within you know since last 40 years when none of that really mattered okay our next question this kind of uh, goes back into the into the gun culture stuff a little bit did you hear about a raid on larry vickers home and shop and the answer is i i just kind of heard about it i don't know any of the particulars anything um, other than that apparently it happened and i don't even know for sure if that's the case i didn't see any news or anything um and this has nothing to do with that situation but it's always one of the reasons why you know i'm not really a big fan of being involved heavily involved with the ATF uh, I've got a couple SBRs okay that's fine I had a CNR license for a while then you know having that just it wasn't just wasn't worth it um, but some of these guys who go out and get these you know the manufacturer license the 
the SOT7s and all the rest of it. And I, I forget what all this stuff stands for, but there's a way you can actually get a license where you can manufacture dealer sample fully automatic weapons if you're going to demonstrate them for somebody and and uh, you can then keep them as long as your license is activated when your license goes away you have uh, the choice of I think you can transfer them to another dealer or you you have to destroy them um, so but a lot of people get fully automatic things that way and and can legally keep them and and kind of legally do all that so um, you know that's that's fine whether this situation ran afoul of any of that I don't know I would assume it's probably a bureaucratic uh, paperwork drill type of thing that that their interpretation and maybe the licensees interpretation are different so that you know and, th and that's they just have to hash all that out so that's that's probably what that is but that's kind of a hassle that i want no part of so i don't i don't obviously do any of that oh here's another question a very interesting question do you think alec baldwin will be charged with any crime i have to say i don't know but i will share my thoughts on it it's, this is one of the most intriguing things I've I've ever seen. I, I remember the Brandon Lee deal. And that was clearly Brandon Lee, son of martial artist icon Bruce Lee. And from what my understanding of that was, they had dummy rounds in a gun. One of the bullets, because they made they had assembled these out of actual components, but with no powder and no primer. One of the bullets slipped forward. And so when they, they took the cartridges out, they did not notice that. And then they reloaded it with blanks. And as they were firing blanks, the force of firing the blank pushed this otherwise unattached projectile down the barrel as if it had fired, been fired from a cartridge with enough velocity to cause a lethal wound. So... Um, that's what happened in the Brandon Lee thing and it and it just happened and uh, you know frankly there there are people who are in periodically there are people who are injured or killed on movie sets it just happens because audiences demand a level of realism and they're always trying to push the envelope a little bit and you know sometimes it goes horribly wrong not often but it but it does this Baldwin thing is even weirder because Apparently the gun was declared a cold gun, but the, and, and again, I, I'm not into union labor problems, but apparently the union people had left the set and part of it was because of safety concerns and the other part was because it hadn't been paid in weeks and weeks. And so they left and then you have non-union people who may not be as licensed or trained to taking their place. You cannot discount the fact that there could have been sabotage maybe one of those people leaving the set said hey i'll just slip a live round in here when they discover that they'll they'll change their mind about getting rid of us and tell us all to come back maybe that was it not intending that it would actually get far enough to the point where it would be pointed at someone and fired because frankly they're never supposed to point a gun at someone and fire it so maybe they thought that this would be a uh, a way to uh, generate a reversal in a decision don't know um there's also a rumor that's been denied that uh, this gun had been used for plinking and target practice after hours. You know, somebody bought real ammo for it, took it out there, and they were shooting around the desert. You know, that could be. It's been denied, but hey, it could be. Uh, there's also how culpable is Alec Baldwin as the actor who's been told he's just been handed a cold gun, as opposed to Alec Baldwin, the producer who's probably made some of the financial decisions that have that have impacted this movie you know and impacted the labor and all the rest of it um there's questions about who this armorer was she's the daughter of thel reed who is a, a legendary kind of character um yeah you can still on youtube find his um uh Ed Sullivan show appearance when he's about 20 years old and he does, you know, trick and exhibition type shooting. Um, it's really a fascinating thing to watch. 
Um, so, but anyway, this is his daughter. She's 24 years old. She does not look like a serious person. Um, when you see the publicity photos of her, she just does not look like a serious practitioner. So uh, it's all of these things are together. Uh, I can tell you this. I can tell you this. Alec Baldwin is in somewhat trouble because he never should have been pointing it at someone. Even the all the Hollywood rules are you you don't point it directly at someone. So he did that. He also did not, and it was he was rehearsing with it. It wasn't like it was you know ready when you are CB. Let's roll them. No, he was actually rehearsing. He should have checked that gun when it was handed to him. Even if somebody says cold gun, you know you've had personnel turnover. You know there's been turmoil on the set and everything. I would double check. I mean, and realize that that some people would be offended at that or say, you know, you're not. You're, we handed it to you in a cold state and you're messing with it. No, you're checking it. And even if he called the assistant director and the and the armor over and said, we're going to check this gun right now before I rehearse with it. You know, I mean, that, that would have saved someone's life, obviously. But he did not do that. He did not choose to do that. So is he is he a deliberate, premeditated murderer? Obviously not. Is there a case for second-degree murder? Probably not. Is there a case for some sort of negligent homicide? Oh, possibly. Is there going to be a lawsuit? Most assuredly. But, you know, I've talked this over with, with some people. And, you, you know, a wrongful death does if this lady had been crippled let's just say that this poor woman who was killed was shot it hit her spine and and guess what she now cannot walk or use her legs anymore that would probably be a larger settlement than a wrongful death it just is because you have the live person who's in the court saying hey i can't walk anymore i can't cook for my family i can't use my house and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of things there and that would that would probably run the tab up so wrongful death i don't know um it always seems like those are less so yes i mean he's in serious trouble i i think i think he will probably evade criminal prosecution on any level and he will probably have to he will probably get sued or at least ask that fam the lady's family, hey, what is it you want? If they say a hundred million bucks, which I don't think Alec Baldwin has, you know, then it's going to go to court. But maybe, maybe, uh, you know, who knows? I, I don't know that he's got insurance. Um, usually, sh insurance that's around shooting stuff has got some very, very. Uh, interesting clauses i'll just leave it at that you know you got to have so many trained people and all that or else the deal's off it's not just a a no matter what you do you're insured if he didn't comply with the stipulations of his insurance policy could be could be in big trouble could be in big trouble over that so we'll see what happens uh we'll definitely see what happens but that's going to be something that everybody's going to be watching and uh, i don't think that Hollywood will change. I, I think it's just going to stay that, that the demand for realism is so great that it's going to it. They'll they'll tighten up the rules, but the rules are already pretty tight if you follow them. You know, it doesn't matter how tight the rules are if you don't follow them. <laughs> they don't matter. So um, it'll be interesting. It's also interesting to know that you know. With semi-automatic arms like evil AR-15s and 1911s and other semi-automatic guns, this really probably could not have happened because those have usually an internal blank firing adapter or a system by which you fire a blank in it and it uses that gas to cycle the make the gun function. So you know that uh, and that would obviously be a major obstruction into the barrel which which might have precluded this because maybe that's those things are set up so that I don't know that you can even chamber a live round in there it's not like the old uh, training m16 uh, blank firing adapters we had in the army that just fit over the <laughs> fit over the flash suppressor and looked really stupid you know they have to hide these things kind of inside the barrel and inside the mechanism 
for Hollywood. So, but you know, obviously, a manually cocked revolver does not need that, or nor would a lever action rifle or a or a bolt action rifle. So, very interesting. And uh, the, again, the push for realism is huge. I remember I was watching a war movie of some kind, and uh, or maybe I'm I'm thinking maybe it was actually. Maybe it was actually Breaking Bad, you know, that series about the school teacher who becomes a, a meth dealer and all that. I remember seeing, anyway, I remember seeing an M60 machine gun being loaded and all the linked rounds were blanks because if you've ever used them, you can, you can tell, you know, it's, it's not a bullet. It's, it's an extension on the end of the cartridge case because the cartridge case is made specifically for blanks and it um they it's you know they're obvious they're they're very obvious to the to the person who's used them that they're blanks and i remember seeing that and i go you know this is why these guys push realism because a certain percentage of their audience is going to say eh, that's phony completely phony and uh, i'm sure they hear about it i'm sure they hear about it okay so alec baldwin who knows the uh uh, the legal system will tell. Okay, I read a list of the best guns the U.S. military never adopted. What is your list? Uh, well, let me see. The best guns the U.S. military has never adopted. And I'm going to keep this to like small arms, you know, rifles and pistols. We'll keep, them, keep it there. And uh, I will say that the first one that the military looked at in the 1950s was the Smith & Wesson Model 39. And that's a great gun. And they never adopted it. There was kind of an OSS, you know, the hush puppy, the silenced version. But um, they never bought them. Uh, I think the only people who bought them were law enforcement. Starting with the Illinois State Police bought them. And uh, those are nice guns. They were very nice guns. I saw one for sale one time. I did not buy it. It would have been cool to buy, but I have no connection to Illinois, the state of Illinois, or the Illinois State Police, so I, I never bought it. And it was like one of those things of, you know, rather limited budgets back then. Uh, there were there were higher priorities. But I'd say Smith & Wesson 39 was a good gun, would have been a very good duty gun. Uh, going back earlier, the uh, 30 caliber Luger, those were tried. The uh, the army put them, actually put a thousand of them through troop trials, and uh, you know they 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 did well. They did well, but after the uh, they did this in the early 1900s, and after the problem with the 38 Long Colt in the Philippines, uh, small caliber small caliber guns u.s army said thanks but no thanks uh they worked they were fine uh were they perfect no but you know hey um it was obviously foreshadowing the emerging technology so yeah the 30 caliber luger didn't go but it could have it could have been adopted and would have been reasonably successful it would have been interesting in world war one you would have had 30 caliber 30 lugers versus nine millimeter lugers and it would have been a, a flip of the uh, traditional thing of 45 versus 9mm. It would have been 9mm versus 30. So that would have been very interesting. Uh, another gun that they looked at was the Smith & Wesson 1905. That's the the one that's kind of the first K-frame. 38 special K-frame. You know, I mean, it a solid gun. Nice gun. Certainly the... Uh, um, the K-Frame 38 Special just became an icon used all around the world by all kinds of people, much more than you could ever list. You could you could you could write volumes on the people who had them and used them. And uh, you know, it always gave great service. Not it's not spectacular, but it's solid. It's a good performer. And the military actually used these later on uh, the the more developed Model 10 as the victory model. And uh, those were around. Those were around in the 80s. In the late 80s, I remember seeing them. And aviators had them. Uh, we we also had a few of them. So, 
you know, those were those were around forever, and uh, they were good, solid guns. And all of the all of the hand wringing and all of the the complaining about having to have more than one cartridge and it's a confusion in the logistics system and all that you know that that's all so totally overblown it's ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous so because we had 38 caliber revolvers uh, for decades after World War II and it never created the logistical nightmare that most people predict it will and a lot of the people predict that have never had a uniform on which kind of tells you there you know there's all kinds of ammunition in a modern military and i mean modern by say world war ii forward even the smaller countries you know and they just they just deal with it <laughs> you know they, they just deal with it okay it's another cartridge in the system so what you know i, I think everybody has this not everybody but these guys have this vision of you're you're you know you're trapped out somewhere and and you you get in the one you know resupply and it's going to have the wrong ammo in it and won't fit your won't fit your sidearm that that just doesn't happen you know so uh, that's the way it goes but the 1905 Smith and Wesson would have been a very good gun probably would have been uh, used through World War II you know it was a solid performer very good gun a Winchester 1873 carbine. I don't know that they ever actually looked at that for you know. And after the Civil War, the the budgets were so paltry for the military, even though they were they were fighting against the Indians. That um, you know the trapdoor carbine, which was a dog in my opinion. I mean, if you're a <laughs> if you're a cavalry trooper and they give you a trapdoor carbine, you have a dog on your hands because at least with the infantry you could say hey the infantry is is you know they they're in groups and they have to volley fire and they have to have long range and they have to have this that and the other thing so you could justify the single shot trapdoor rifle the carbine and and i like the carbine it's cool it's nice it's handy and everything else but if you're a cavalry trooper it's a dog man i mean this thing this thing single loads and you're on horseback so what else are you gonna say? Whereas if you had a forty-four forty Winchester, hey, you don't have the range, but hey, you're a cavalryman. You're riding up on somebody, surprising them. You know, you're doing a cavalry charge into the thick of their. You don't need a long-range gun. There's no, there's no reason for you to have a long-range carbine. You know, that's almost an oxymoron. You know, like, you know jumbo shrimp, long-range carbine. You know, it's like jum jumbo shrimp, minor crisis, <laughs> friendly fire, all those things. Um, long-range carbine. It, a carbine is is basically a hundred yards and under, and a forty four forty would have been would have been excellent for that. So that would have been a a great one. Um, these two you can do together, the FAL and the AR ten, um, outstanding battle rifles, both of them. Um, the FAL is a little more developed design, um, and we've gone through the reasons. I've gone through it a couple different times on the podcast. Of the fact of the matter is those weren't adopted number one because the ar-10 was kind of conceptually too new and different and for the fal because it was it was too it was a good design but too different most of our manpower that we were going to need for world war three was had already been trained on the grand and the uh, carbine and the m1 carbine so we needed a rifle that was kind of like those and that's what we got with the m14 and it was fine so but those were great guns that were never adopted and uh you know with any of these with any of these things if they had been adopted we wouldn't have gone it wouldn't have been a disaster you know when was the last disastrous gun that the military adopted and i think i'd have to say hey the 38 long colt wasn't that great you know it was it wasn't bad for most uses but it really wasn't that great okay you could say that um the Chauche was just kind of fostered on us, so I don't really count that. The Reasing, yeah, it was a crappy submachine gun. Okay, you know, so what? For it wound up, it wound up guarding uh, defense plants in the United States and was fine. So <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, so we really don't, we really don't adopt bad guns, and we really don't. 
you know, these guns would not have been failures. They wouldn't have been failures. Uh, the AR-10 probably needed a little more development, but um, I think the AR-10 is very cool. Um, very, very cool. I do say, though, that for my own shooting, I got the Brownells, and I mentioned it many times before, the Brownells uh, Proto AR-15, the, you know, the first one with the, uh, uh, the handle, the uh, cocking handle on the top. That, you know, it looks like an upside down trigger. So that's a that's a great gun, and uh, th I like that because it's five five six, and it's a little easier shooting than the. Uh, and I already have magazines and and all the other stuff for it, so it, it's a little better fit for me than the other. But I do have to say that uh, you know the AR ten was a a fantastically advanced weapon and very very good. There, I can't think of any negative negative battlefield reports for an AR-10 you know now it would have been where would we have wound up and whether the FAL or AR-10 were adopted we would have wound up in the same place with the M16A1 in the mid 60s because that's just kind of where things went so the uh, the path to get there it could have been uh, through the AR-10 could have been through the FAL but it turned out to be through the uh, M14 so those are the those are the guns if you can think of any any others and there you know there's the johnston rifle that's that was a pretty good rifle not great but pretty good and, and really I, I think the history is kind of basically um proven that it was it would have been a second choice to the grand but it wasn't a bad rifle and it wouldn't have been a disaster to adopt that at least let's say the marine corps adopted it and used it in the pacific would not have been a bad thing would not have been a bad thing there would have been endless debate and and uh, magazine articles though about which one was better you know that could have uh, that could have fueled magazine uh, articles and, and put in space in in uh, uh, magazines for years years and years and years so that's uh that would have been it okay next question is what weapon has been in the U.S. military inventory the longest? I'll take that as being weapons that were actively used. Obviously, we have stuff from maybe even the Revolutionary War that's in the museum system. And thats I don't think that's the intent of the question. Uh, I think that's, this is pretty simple. It's been the M2 Browning. And uh, they found one that I think was three... Uh, was serial number 375 or something and they found that a couple of years ago and they were retrofitting them with the new fixed headspace barrel so um, <clears throat> and that one had been around since the early 30s so I'm just thinking that that's been like 90 years so yeah the, the, the M2 Browning has been in service for about 90 years which is amazing when you kind of think about it. Um, let's see, the uh, 1911 was 75 years, actually a little longer. I saw them as late as, I can't remember, 95 or 96. So you, you could say that's 80 years. That's almost 80, 83, 84 years. That's almost as long, not quite, but almost. And the 50 cal's not going anywhere. That's the thing. It's going to stay, it's going to be 100 years, maybe even 110 years, who knows. Um, beyond that, I would have to say that the, the M14 has been around since 58, 59, so that's almost 65 years old, almost 63, 64 years old. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of anything else other than that, um. Uh, I did run across an article one time where they were talking about during World War II, they, they, there were some natives in, I can't remember, it was New Guinea or one of those, one of those islands in that, environ, in, in that environment. And in order to kind of arm them so they could do, they were, they were friendly and I guess they were helping, you know, finding lost people or, or whatever. So they... Um, decided to give them some weapons and basically they were used to muzzle-loading cap-lock weapons so they were given a bunch of 1863 Springfield rifles 
Those had to have come out of, if not the museum system, they came out of an inventory somewhere. But I think that's an anomalous case. But you could say the 1863 Springfield, you know, came out in the Civil War and was given out as military aid in World War II. So there you go. That's a long time. That's a long time. Uh, so that's that's pretty interesting. I know that uh, some plant guards and things, you know, during World War One, sabotage was kind of a real thing had a couple of plants below there were some german agents a couple of them were snagged up and you know later repatriated back to germany after the war but yeah they blew up a few things so we actually had armed plant guards and i think some of them had things like trapdoor spring fields um so that wouldn't have been very long really you're talking 1873 to 1918 uh, whatever that is 50 years you know so you know, you're, you're talking that some of these weapons hang around and simply because they exist, they get used. And that's a, uh, that's a pretty good thing. Uh, you know, it's nice to see, see things get used. Uh, yeah, that's, that's for the U.S. military, though. That's about the only things I can think of that would last the longest. And, uh, you know, I was actually surprised. I, I did not think the Beretta would be replaced as quickly as it was the m9 i i was actually kind of because it's actually a very good gun and uh you know it does have some reputation problems that that really are undeserved and uh some other things all of its criticisms are fundamentally unres undeserved the only thing you can say the reason that it was replaced in my opinion was um the double action single action operation of the gun is now considered obsolete so um they did not want that same way with the 1911 you know hey it, it's it was around for 75 years and people kind of said hey the, the single action single stack auto is you know that's that's way yesterday's news so uh you know it was replaced for for that for for really one reason and that was the double action single action pull which nobody ever has really liked no a lot of people say good things about the beretta but that that system itself you know cooper cooper made a living jeff cooper made a living just bashing that he called it an ingenious solution to a non-existent problem you know so there you go um, there, there were a lot of guys who said carry cocked and locked and why would you need this other thing and not kind of looking at the realities of police and, and, and other things. So anyway, that is the, uh, that was, those are my answers to that question. It, the 50 cal has been around forever and it's still going to be around, still going to be around. I don't know if there's any plan. It's kind of like the B-52, you know, when you just need a big hulking airplane that can haul a lot of bombs, and drop them on people who don't have any air defense. <laughs> B-52 is awesome. And as a matter of fact, they're re-engining those. And I think they're going to last into like the 2040s or something. So that may be a 90-year weapon also. The uh, C-130 has been around since 54. Uh, and no real plans to replace it. It's just good at what it does. And there's I don't know that there's any going to be any. And it's very upgradable. So it's uh, it's been upgraded with engines and avionics and all those other good things. I'm trying to think of anything else that has lasted that long. Navy Navy is pretty uh, pretty good. They don't keep stuff around. They they kept the Midway class aircraft carriers until what the early early 90s. That's that was about. 50 years they got about 50 years out of those i think they came in at 45 and were pretty much gone by 95 so yeah that 50 years so that that lasts um but i can't think of anything else the navy they usually you know they they get ships in and and you know i've never i've never been in the navy so i don't know i would assume that after 30 or 40 years those ships are probably pretty uh it's probably just so uneconomical to keep them going that it's better to, and, and technology moves on so uh, it's probably better to, to do that but yeah they they get they get a lot of mileage out of it but they don't necessarily get the kind of time that that uh, the 50 cal and, and the b52 and a few other things have gotten so 
Anyway, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And if you have any questions or comments, you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean, or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.